One of the great privileges of my life has been the opportunity to study with people, great masters, teachers of different religions. Personally, I'm a practicing Catholic, something that's the very center of my life. I see the differences between these faiths, but the, the thing that's really caught my attention is the moral similarities. The great faiths of the world teach some of the same subversive truths. When you read the Dhammapada, which is one of the texts that is thought to quote the Lord Buddha, he says something very, very striking about how we should treat people that we don't get along with, that maybe we hate or who hate us. The Buddha says to conquer the evil man with kindness, conquer the miser with generosity. <laughs> it's so counterintuitive, isn't it? Jesus takes it up a notch. In the fifth chapter of Matthew, the 44th verse, he says something very famous that every single listener has heard before. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who harm you. Now, notice what the Buddha and what Jesus are not saying. He's not saying we should tolerate other people. No, they're urging us to have much higher standards with our enemies, to love our enemies. Now, maybe you think that's crazy, or maybe you think that's just blah, blah, blah. But maybe it's possible. Can we love our enemies? Is that just fuzzy and sentimental talk? Or could that be reality? Probably not. I don't think I'm that big of a person. I do understand that they're human. I know that I'm supposed to love and embrace them for who they are. I struggle with that, but that's why I go to therapy. <laughs> not really sure who I would call my enemy. God, Jesus said to love you. I didn't yes, I do. Like, I want to say I do, or that I don't hate them, but now some of my enemies I just wish horrible things upon. Hi, I'm Arthur Brooks, and this is The Arthur Brooks Show. This season, we're talking about love, why you need it, and how to get it. I'm going to argue that you should love your enemies, and I'm going to tell you how I think you can love your enemies. Now, when I talk about the subject, loving your enemies, the first question that a lot of people ask is, how can I love somebody who's unlovable? Well, I don't think that people are unlovable to begin with. I think that there are unlovable acts. I think that there are unlovable statements. People do unlovable things all the time, by the way, including me. But I don't think we should write any people off, and I'm gonna tell you why. But before we get to that, we have to start at the beginning. Who is your enemy? For some of us, it's pretty simple. Yeah, naturally. I mean, someone shooting at you, they're not really your friends. Francisco Mesa has been shot at by his enemies, and he's got 33 gunshot wounds to prove it. I, I believe that for a minute I had a, a bullet magnet on me, but uh, I'm trying to correct my past but uh, your past always catches up to you. Francisco was a former gang member in Los Angeles. I was born in East LA, but I uh, grew up in uh, South LA. Um, well, never really grew up, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to reach there. Francisco has been living this life for a long time. 
by the age of eight, I was already uh, involved in gang activities and I already uh, been through or seen, experienced uh, several uh, gang shootouts. I mean, pretty much at that time, that was a regular day. I came from a abusive, uh, a broken home, and uh, my parents were pretty much uh, concentrated on keeping a roof and food on the table, and uh, so most of the time they weren't uh, around. So I, I tend to, uh, I took to the streets, and um, at that time uh, the streets were uh, infested with gangs. So this is Francisco's past: the streets, the gangs, the guns. But it's not his present. I just, um, I'm short of uh, two months of being uh, released from prison. And I, you know, uh, pretty much I, I didn't want to tend to going back to prison. So naturally, my first uh, reaction is coming to Homeboy Industries. Homeboy Industries is a program that gives education and job training to former gang members and people who've been incarcerated. This is an opportunity to take a sharp turn to leave that old life of violence behind. But when Francisco decided to show up there, when he took the decision to do this, this was the first thing that happened. Okay, the uh, first time that I walked into Homeboy, uh, my enemy was the first person that greeted me at the door. In a past life, both of them and their gangs would have been at war with each other. And uh, to receive that um, that greeting from a person you once seen as the opposite, it's a, you can't really put it into words or definitions. It's a very uh, uh, overwhelming to uh, be put in a situation like that, but to later understand that it's it's part of the dynamics, the, the great dynamics at Homeboy Industries. And the dynamics of Homeboy? Gang members leave old rivalries behind. But for that moment, that first step into Homeboy, that was a big deal for Francisco. Very shocked. The fact that that person uh, welcomed me, you know, welcome to Homeboy Industries, you know, come in. How you doing? That that's a uh, mind blowing. I mean, uh, I'm shaking just thinking about it. To be honest. And Francisco finally came full circle because that's how homeboy works. I played forward the the uh, same token that I was granted at first by doing just the same thing by greeting people that probably would see me as an enemy. Yeah, so there are 120,000 gang members in L.A. County and 1,100 gangs. So, Father Greg Boyle from Homeboy Industries. My guess is at this point, after 30 years of our existence, there isn't a single one of those gang members who doesn't know who we are and what we do and what we're about. Father Boyle is a Jesuit priest and the founder of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles. He's also the author of two books, Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion, and more recently, Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. Father Boyle is well-known around the country to people who want to understand how we can bring young people together who are caught in the grip 
of gang violence. Homeboy Industries provides services to more than 10,000 men and women each year. It employs and trains former gang members in a lot of social enterprises. But when Father Boyle first came to the Boyle Heights neighborhood in the late 80s, eight gangs were at war with each other. It had the highest concentration of gang activity in the city. That was 1988, and the first thing we did was we started a school for junior high, middle school age gang members, and they were kind of out in the the projects wreaking havoc and violent and selling drugs. So I asked each one, I'd say, hey, if I found a school that would take you, would you go? And, And they all said yes, and then I couldn't find a school that would take them, so that forced my hand, and I, I gently asked the nuns to uh, vacate the convent, and we turned the convent into a school for gang members. Hmm. So, and then they said, if only we had jobs, and so then we kind of started a jobs program. We tried to find felony-friendly employers, and that wasn't so forthcoming, so we started maintenance crews and landscaping crews, that kind of thing. And then we started Homeboy Bakery, and then Homeboy Tortillas at another location. And so we originally called ourselves Jobs for a Future, and then we changed our name to Homeboy Industries, and that's what we've been ever since. One of the things that my parents always taught me is that the mark of moral courage is not loving people who are traditionally unloved, but those who are thought to be unlovable. Because that's where that's where your faith is really tested. You know, that's a really, really hard thing to do. And I can't think of anybody that's traditionally thought to be more unlovable than people belonging to street gangs. Um, If you listen to politicians today in the United States in particular, you'd think that they were just these super predators with no conscience and no remorse and really no humanity. And yet you've written that gang violence is about a lethal absence of hope. Nobody's ever met a hopeful kid who joined a gang. Well, the profile of kids who join a gang are, are kids who can't imagine their future. And that, that, and when that happens, your present isn't very compelling. And so then you're stuck in a place that's pretty dark that requires people to infuse a sense of hope to these kids for whom hope is foreign. And, and the second profile is the kid who's so deeply traumatized, who can't see his way clear to to transform his pain, so he just keeps transmitting it. And the third profile of a kid who joins a gang is a mentally ill kid. So almost any any of the gang members who walk through our doors here are somewhere in that continuum of severity, you know. But that's sort of the key. You know, there, there's only three profiles. There aren't eight. And uh, so those are the profiles of kids who join gangs, but there's also the profiles of folks who um, need a place like homeboys. So if we can give them some rest from their own chronic toxic stress, then they can heal. And an educated inmate or gang member may or may not go back to prison, and an employed one may or may not. But it is our guarantee here at Homeboy Industries that a a healed gang member won't ever re-offend. We have all these businesses And every gang member here has to work with multiple, multiple enemies, guys they used to shoot at. So it's a kind of a a threefer, you know, they get to find healing, they have money in their pockets, and they have the added advantage of being able to um, work side by side with somebody they uh, used to hate. Is it hard for them to work with the people that they used to hate? Is that the hardest part? 
No, I wouldn't say that it is, you know, because that, that gets dissolved so quickly. You know, you can stand side by side with the guy you used to shoot at and you're both making croissants in the bakery. And somehow, I don't know what it is, wordlessly, they're working something out. And uh, it always happens. I can't think of a single exception where anybody still hung on to their resentment. So there's this us and them that dissolves into only us. And that's the healing piece here is that people enter into a community of kinship such that God might recognize it. We always say, you know, love is the answer and, and community is the context and tenderness is the methodology. So here they have a real palpable experience of tenderness, which is love at its most connective. Uh, otherwise, love stays in your head or in the air or in your heart even. But unless it becomes tender, it, there's, it, there's no union, there's no kinship, there's no connective tissue. So we kind of stay anchored in that here because it's tenderness is the most foreign thing to a gang member. And yet it's the most uh, healing moment for them. Hmm. So it sounds to me like you don't see anybody as unlovable. Everybody can be loved more, um, and you see the humanity in each person. That's a, that's a, I think it's an important insight. Yeah, you? you know, I think sometimes, sometimes people will say, well, I, I, you know, I, I don't really see the good qualities in this person. It's not about qualities. It's about goodness, that everybody has this unshakable goodness. Uh, the Buddhists would call it Buddha nature, you know. Everybody has goodness. Everybody does. Hmm. And that demonizing that happens currently in our country is is not only untruth, but demonizing is the opposite of who God is. Hmm. And, it, you, you know, you were mentioning earlier loving your enemies. You know, we're not invited to do that because it's the harder thing, but because it is the thing that most resembles the kind of God we have. So, it's, it's not about a hard, difficult thing. It's about seeing in a different way. And you spend one minute here and you see people and, and you see only unshakable goodness couched in, you know, people who have a hard time conjuring up an image of tomorrow or who, who have been unspeakably traumatized or who carry more than I've ever had to carry. So suddenly you're ushered into a sense of compassion and awe. Father Greg Boyle from Homeboy Industries. So far in this episode, we've been talking about how to go about loving our enemies on a very personal level. When we come back from the break, we're going to broaden it out and talk about enemies who are whole groups of people, communities, countries, and intractable hatred that people have felt maybe for hundreds of years. Enemies who aren't shooting at each other necessarily, but who are just as hateful. How do we work with that? How do we even begin to understand it? That's after the break. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate 
in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. A couple of years before the 2016 presidential election, I was doing an event in New Hampshire. It was a lot of activists, a lot of political activists that made up the audience, um, and they were almost all conservatives. So the people who were on stage giving speeches were mostly politicians. I was kind of the non-politician on the speaking docket that day. And as I was backstage listening to politicians, doing what the politicians always do, which is firing up the audience and saying the other side is really bad, um, making them angry and hoot and holler, I thought to myself, what can I do to make this better? I'm not a public official. I don't have to win votes for anything, actually. And I came up with a little plan, and here's what I did. I was out giving my speech, and in the middle I stopped, and I said— And this is, again, this is a group of conservative activists. And and to be quite clear, my own politics are right of center. I said, look, my friends, we agree on a lot of things here, but I want you to remember the people who are not with us today because they don't agree with us. Those are political progressives. And what I want you to remember is that they're not stupid and they're not evil. They're just Americans who disagree with us. And later, this lady She came up to me, and she was not so pleased with what I had said. I didn't quite know what her criticism was going to be, but here it was. She said, it's okay to say that people on the other side are stupid and evil because they are. (laughs) You know what that made me think about? That made me think about my upbringing because people I grew up with were the people I was talking about. They were political progressives. I grew up in Seattle, Washington. (laughs) in a progressive family. And when that lady said that to me, she wasn't trying to be offensive and she wasn't trying to hurt my feelings, but she was talking about my family. And I'll be honest with you, I took it personally. And I thought that day, this is going to be a new day for me because almost everybody loves somebody with whom they disagree politically. And I think the way that we can bring the country back together is by remembering the people with whom we disagree, but that we love and defending them to people on our own side. A couple of years ago, I read an article about something called motive attribution asymmetry. That's a pretty big term. Social scientists, they give kind of fancy terms to all sorts of things. I mean, we have to get tenure after all. Motive attribution asymmetry is the belief that you are motivated by love, love for your community, love for each other, but that your opponents, whether they're your opponents in war or your opponents in politics or whatever, that your opponents are motivated not by love, but by hate, hatred for you, maybe hatred for for your whole country, 
Who knows? Maybe hatred for the world. Now, this, of course, is absurd because when you have motive attribution asymmetry, where you have two groups of people that believe that they are motivated by love and the other side is motivated by hate, both sides can't be right. The scholar behind this research is Adam Waits. Adam Waits is a psychologist who does a lot of work on politics and has found that, in point of fact, things are pretty grim in American politics today because of motive attribution asymmetry. Delighted to welcome to the show now Adam Waits. He's a professor of management and organizations at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. Adam's a psychologist. He did his PhD at the University of Chicago, and he's the author of a book called it's forthcoming, called The Power of Human, How Our Shared Humanity Can Help Us Create a Better World. Welcome to the Arthur Brooks Show, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. The research that you have been engaged in over the past few years that's been blowing my mind a little bit, frankly, is about what you call motive attribution asymmetry or political motive asymmetry. The basic finding is that when you're on one side of a conflict, you think your group is motivated by love more than hate. And uh, more often than not, uh, you believe the people on the other side of the uh, conflict are motivated by hatred of you more than love of their own. Uh, So that's the basic asymmetry. And uh, we found that in in a few studies, uh, we feel like other people have found bits and pieces of that tendency, and we just kind of put it all um, together. It's a super interesting hypothesis, and the in- and the, and the findings are really compelling too, but here's the mind-blowing part. You find equal levels of political motive asymmetry today in the way that Democrats and Republicans see each other in America, right? Yes. So uh, our studies with Israelis and Palestinians were what we call nationally representative, which means we're taking a broad swath of Israeli and Palestinian Israeli society and uh, we're showing how this phenomenon manifests. Our uh, studies with Democrats and Republicans used a convenient sample, which was heavier on Democrats than Republicans. Uh, We would love to get a more representative sample Basically, what we're dealing with is a minority of Republicans, yet nonetheless, when we look at the data we've collected, yes, we show a similar pattern across uh, across the board. When I read your 2014 paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, I mean, the, the, what, I, what I perceived, and of course, we wouldn't know unless we tested for this specifically, but what I saw as most likely was a self-reinforcing mechanism. Yeah. Because that's all, that you know, these downward spirals in, in human conflict are what we see over and over again, where there's a misrepresentation of the other side's motives. That person is defined as an enemy. The enemy must hate us. Since they hate us, they are our enemy. And then, and it gets worse and worse till there's less there, there's less overlap, there's less interaction, there's less communication, and things get worse and worse. And and we'll talk a little in a minute about how you fix that, but that's possible, right? We're, we're just in kind of a downward spiral uh, in American politics today because political motive asymmetry builds on itself. That, that's exactly right. And that was the motivation behind doing this work, to understand intractable conflict, to understand these conflict spirals. And to phrase it another way, 
If you believe the other side hates you rather than simply loves their own, then it makes no sense to use dis- diplomacy. It makes no sense to rely on some common ground. Hey, we're both looking out for our tribes. What it makes sense is to uh, crush them. And if you act in that aggressive way, then you simply appear more hateful to the other side. They're going to respond in kind, and you get this sort of reciprocal uh, interaction that uh, spirals downward. So here's how much of an influence your work has had on me, Adam. Um, My new book is called (laughs) Love Your Enemies. And I start off the first chapter of the book after the introduction talking about the paper, Mm -hmm. the 2014 paper. And the whole point is... Look, if you hate your enemies and you increasingly see people as enemies, there's just no good place that that can go. And so you need something that's radical and subversive, which is to do exactly the opposite of what your heart is telling you to do, and that is to love your enemies. But it's also based on what I actually think is a mistake, not a moral mistake, but a, a mistake in the mode of asymmetry. You actually have collected the data on this, and what I've done is I've gone over the past 100 speeches or so, I ask audiences the same question every single time. And, you know, I do stuff like you do. I mean, I talk to very conservative audiences and I talk to very liberal audiences at universities and and everything in between. And I ask every audience today, how many of you love somebody with whom you disagree politically? And 100% of hands go up every single time. So when I talk to people individually who have participated in that little convenient experiment that I do in public events. And then I say, so therefore, um, are you of the opinion that everybody that you know and love who disagrees with you politically loves you, but everybody you don't know (laughs) who disagrees with you politically hates you? (laughs) And they realize it actually doesn't make sense. So political motive asymmetry in this case is actually appears to me to not be based on reality, right? Yeah. So uh, because – Uh, there's a lot of sticklers in social science about what you can call an error or not. We were careful around that language. But uh, given that, you know, we're talking in polite company, I certainly believe it's it's an error. It's certainly at least an error in magnitude. Yeah, no, the logical step forward that then maybe this is where you're going is what happens when you make people realize this is an error. Yeah, good. So let's let's, now let's use this to maybe – love our enemies more, right? I mean, this is why this research that you've done had such a big impact on me because it suggested that the problem is not that the secret to loving your enemies is realizing that Mm -hmm. your enemies don't hate you, right? Right. And in fact, I had a student a few years ago, sometimes I teach executives, and this guy was a Green Beret, a former Green Beret. And uh, this guy was sent over on the first mission to Afghanistan after uh, 9-11, and he'd been in Afghanistan and Iraq several times. And what he described to me was exactly this. You know, you go over there, and initially, you are trained to treat the folks in Afghanistan or whatever as the enemy. And they realized once they had more kind of sit downs with the mullahs and heard about their grievances and talked about their families and thing like things like that. In other, in other words, when they made love more visible or part of the conversation, they got much more uh, out of those interactions, you know, psychologically, but also strategically, and did a lot of wonders for for them over there. Why did they train in that way? Is there something that makes them more effective as Marines, or what did you learn about that? Essentially, what I've learned in, in, in my own research is that um, a lot of training involves making people comfortable with uh, doing harm. 
because it also turns out to be the case that humans are tremendously harm-averse, even averse to harming our own enemies. And, and essentially, uh, what my student described it as is professionalizing um, killing, which sounds, you know, fairly awful uh, to me. Um, but, you know, I guess the idea is that if you professionalize uh, these acts, you start treating them as part of your job and you become more comfortable with these things morally. And I think at some point he snapped out of that line of thinking and realized there's, a, there's another way. Uh, and so that was a really kind of inspiring affirmation of uh, a lot of things that I believed in my research as well. So the worst possible way that you could become informed of the reality of how other people see you, whether they're liberals or conservatives, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, whether they're religious people or atheists or whatever, the worst possible way for you to become really informed is to silo your news feeds, to cocoon yourself in information that only supports your point of view because you will be manipulated by leaders that want to fire you up. And you will not be actually hearing from other people who turns out don't hate you, right? Exactly. And when I talk about this research, a great question often comes up, which is, okay, well, where does this mode of attribution asymmetry come from? Is this something that comes from within the people of your surveys? Or is this more likely to come from political leaders and media outlets preaching a certain message that then gets uh, internalized. And I think that is what you are getting at. And then uh, another part of this question is, okay, well, why, you know, why does this mode of attribution asymmetry persist or what's the source of this misperception? And my speculation, again, my speculation without hard data is, well, when do we actually come into contact with our ostensible enemies or foes or ideological opponents. Uh, so most of the time, we, we don't interact with them in daily life. You know, Part of political polarization is literally uh, we spend less time with people on the other side of the aisle. So where do we see them? We see them filtered through media sources, uh, portraying them in the worst imaginable light. So when would we ever see instances of them you know, loving their family or, uh, you know, attending a funeral of a loved one. Those data points are exceedingly rare. Well, what data are we collecting on our enemies? Well, we can see very easily the worst of the other side, images of them hating us. I always think about this as as like a sampling bias. You know, we sample a bunch of information in the world. And if if we're sampling information on our enemies or our ideological outgroups, and we're doing it through a ideologically filtered lens, we're only going to pick up on instances of hatred, and we're not going to see those instances of of, uh, love. But let me raise another concern. There's something psychologically comfortable about having an enemy. When people are confronted with uh, existential anxieties, there's a certain certainty to knowing that there's an enemy there. And it also serves as a convenient scapegoat as well that can make us feel better. So I guess what we need to do then is shift who that enemy is from the person across the aisle from me to uh, someone perhaps above me not acting in my my best interest. Hmm. 
Yeah, you know, one of the things that this stimulates for me, though, is I've heard this old theory that people need to have an enemy because we're just who we are. And Mm. so, therefore, as the world gets safer, the world gets more prosperous, all that Steven Pinker stuff— everything's getting better, that we, we we invent new enemies. That's the human well, condition a little bit, right? I mean, it seems like that. Look, it's all relative. You know, when I look at the existential threats that were going on in the 16th century, where the chances were approximately one in 100 that I was going to be killed in military conflict, and now it's one in, one in hundreds of thousands that anything would befall me like that. I'm going to start saying that, look, the, 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 the guy with a club in the next village is no longer my enemy, so, you know, a, a Republican is, or something absurd like that. Well, you know, I, I think there's a lot to that as well. In fact, on this idea of uh, inventing enemies, we have some uh, work in progress showing that when you expose people to the idea that automation is taking jobs, people become more anti-immigrant, as though they've transferred what should be uh, animosity toward uh, technology or uh, the people responsible for that technology or uh, concerns about uh, that technology to a human scapegoat. Yeah, so that's kind of how we're wired, maybe. Uh, but here's the best news. The way to love your enemies yeah. is to stop having clouded judgment, to perceive reality as reality uh, exists, yeah. that these people actually aren't your enemies, so therefore you have no reason to consider them as such. You have no reason not to love them. And so we need a, a reality-based movement, right? I say, yes, that's the step forward. Let's uh, everyone get a grip on reality. The problem is, and we call this phenomenon naive realism, everyone believes that their version of reality is the accurate version of reality. And then what that implies is that if you don't see the world as I see it, then you must be blind to reality. And then, again, again, you get into these uh, conflict and misperception cycles. So, so then the question becomes, okay, how do we undo naive realism? Well, um, you know, I haven't looked at that literature in, the, in a while. I also think it's one of the hardest things to do. I do know that and I'm thinking back to your exercise of getting people to raise their hands. If you get people to say, okay, look, I know these guys over here uh, see the world totally differently from you, and and therefore you think that they're biased and, and you'll never get along. Can you think about one thing, one thing that they've said over there that you agree with? And so um, this sort of small dosing of uh, getting some shared reality might be the way out of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, it's one of the reasons that when you get people together who really disagree, the best way to have a productive conversation is to have them start talking about things that they that they both really believe. And the best way that I've ever seen is to, is to ask them to tell each other about their children. Uh, because That's uh, fantastic. Everybody loves their children. <laughs> You know, on a similar note, I, I, I swear this is um, this has been my big revelation. Um, uh, thinking about this over the past few months, I was thinking one of the the gateways to ideological agreement, aside from children, could be uh, dog ownership. Yeah. Now, positive sentiment toward animals is something that is is become increasingly bipartisan. And I think, you know, the dog is the gateway issue. And so I've been thinking about um, the nice thing about pets, too, is they're totally 
non-human. Um, they're, they're kind of a third party, a neutral third party. Um, you know, love of animals could be uh, a starting point. I, I know it sounds a little out there. But no, I I'm, love it. Are you I'm kidding? I, although I have to say, all I can. my dog Chucho is a huge leftist. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a problem it, when when the dogs start uh, um, bickering. Totally, uh, and then exactly. just, uh, agitating yeah. for you know more income redistribution and, and more kibble redistribution yeah. and, and yeah, exactly you know, bones. Exactly, and I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, the secret to loving your enemies is actually love. Yeah, thank you, and uh, you know, as always, there's there's more more to do, more for me to do. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. You know, we've just scratched the surface of loving your enemies. It's so hard, isn't it? <laughs> That's the reason I've written a whole book on this subject. This book comes out next week, and guess what it's called? Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. What I do in this book is go into way greater depth than what we've done here on the podcast. And we don't just need public policies that do this, and we don't just need political candidates that do this. We need ordinary citizens of goodwill who are going to do this. We need a social movement. We need to do it together. That's why I wrote Love Your Enemies. We're going to tape this show live, specifically on March 10th at 7.30 p.m. at the 92nd Street Y in New York City. I'm going to be joined by my friend Simon Sinek, the best-selling author of Start With Why and Leaders Eat Last. We're going to talk about my new book, which is coming out the same week as this taping. So please be there. Come see us. Be part of the experience. And if you want to get tickets, it's pretty easy. Go to the website of the 92nd Street Y. That's 92y.org. See ya at 7.30 Sunday night, March 10th. Our team at AEI is CeCe Gallagher and Nathan Thompson. At Vox Media, Golda Arthur is senior producer, Jarrett Floyd is our engineer, and Nishath Kurwa is executive producer of audio. Our theme music is composed by Gautam Shrikashan. Please rate and review the podcast and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. <laughs>